I just realized I pretty much finished, finished up uh, um, the theory part. I want to go into the practice, but um, if anybody has, I, I can't give a lot of time to questions, but if anybody has a question that's just begging to be asked, um, I would be glad for you to raise it before we dive in again. But, uh, okay, I gave you a chance. Okay, good. Well, something comes up, just, just uh, don't hesitate. Um, okay, what I want to do now is um, start with a very simple verse. And uh, I'm going to start with uh, John chapter 16, verse 33. And uh, this is to show you some things that I do with the text. Um, before I go to any commentaries or anything else, I just want to look, look, look at the fish and to see as much as I possibly can see. And you don't need a Bible program to do this. I'm going to do it on a Bible program just because it's easier to, to see for you. But uh, sometimes there's real value just doing it with a pencil and paper. And uh, so I'm going to have us look at John chapter 16, verse 33. And uh, let's see if I can get myself to it. Okay, there it is, right here. And uh, first of all, um, you just see that it's uh, uh, John. So John 16, 33, it's the last statement of Jesus in the upper room discourse. And by upper room discourse, remember that's, the, that's where Jesus went um, for the Last Supper. And, and uh, the Last Supper is in all the Gospels, except for in, in John, it's a little bit different. It's mainly focused on his speeches and what he says. So it's got this three-chapter discourse, this, this message, this sermon of Jesus and then followed in chapter 17 by his prayer for um, the disciples and for all those who believe um, in, in his name through them, and that's us. And so Jesus prays for us in John chapter 17. But uh, so I, I look at this text here, and uh, the reason, I'll just give you a little personal reason why it's a special text for me. Um, I got married back in 1977, June 15th, and uh, um, it was a week after I graduated from college. And so um, my pastor from my home church, he did the wedding, but I asked um, uh, John Piper if he would do the message. So I asked him. He was, he was Dr. Piper back in those days. And I, and, uh, and I told him, I said, I want you... I want you to give the message. I said, would you arc something? And, uh, and you don't arc in a sermon. You know, you don't do that. But he knew what I meant. So he, he picked um, John 16, 33. And, uh, and I can still remember the sermon um, as if it were yesterday. I, mean, I can remember the points and, and all of that. So, so this text is, is, is special to me in, in, a, in a very personal way. But, uh, but it's a short little, little passage. And so, uh, we'll start right here. So, the first thing that I'm going to do with you is, is teach you um, what I mean by phrasing. Um, phrasing a text. Okay? And, uh, 
And so I take a passage, usually I take a, a paragraph, this is just a verse, but I'm just doing this as a little sample. But uh, I will look at this text and I will divide it into its phrases. And uh, um, another way to talk about a phrase is a proposition or a clause, okay? Um, so, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay, so it's a famous, wonderful verse. So I want to I break it up, and uh, so I'm going to just break it up in its, into its phrases or into its propositions. So I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. So a lot of times punctuation will help. Um, but in the original Greek, there's no punctuation, you know, so you just had to kind of go by the, the words and, and so forth. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay, so now I've, I've, what I've done is I've, I've phrased it. I've put it into its phrases, and, uh, um, and I can just begin to look at it. It's, it's, like a, it's like a diamond, you know, and every phrase is a facet of the diamond. And I just, just want to look at them, look at them, and see them in context, see the flow. And uh, so um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you another thing. Um, we'll probably come back to this. Um, I'm going to do three things with this text. I'm, I'm, I'm phrasing it. And I'm going to diagram it, and I'm going to arc it. Okay, and I don't expect you to learn the diagramming and the arcing. I think you can learn the phrasing just by, by being here today. But uh, I just want to give—I just want to tease you and torment you a little bit. Um, and uh, and for some of you, I might be awakening nightmares because if you if you grew up in a school that demanded sentence diagramming, you probably hated the teacher. Um, and uh, but I'll show you what, what it does. Um, here, here's a diagram. And, uh, and there's different ways to diagram. Your diagramming might look different than mine, but what I like about diagramming is that it just forces me to account for every single word. If you believe that, that the Scripture is God's inspired word, and that every word is there because of his intention. I want to understand how every single word fits in. And I'm not saying you all should do this because most of us do this intuitively. We, we, we just know it. But sometimes it, it just increases our understanding and our appreciation if you stop and ask, how is every word fitting in to make these ideas? And, uh, and so I'll just show you the way I diagram. So I've got John 16, 33. And uh, um, here's the components over here. And this is, this is what separates the subject from the verb. So how many people are getting nervous already because it's bringing <laughs> bad memories from second and third and fourth grade or whatever it is. But uh, I mean... I, yeah, I went to St. John the Baptist Catholic School, and it was a grammar school. They actually taught grammar. 
and I did not like it at all, but I'm glad they did. Um, so, so right here I want to find out what's the subject and what's the verb of the first clause. A clause is a subject and a verb, okay? So, here's, um, I have said these things to you, okay? Here's the verb. I usually look for the verb first, and it's, I have said, it's got a helping verb, um, I have said, the subject is I, right? Who has said? I have said. And then you have to ask who the I is. Anytime you see a pronoun in Scripture, always ask who that pronoun relates back to. And obviously in this context, it's who? It's Jesus. Good. I have said these things to you. Okay? So, um, so now we've got these things is really functioning as the direct object. And if you don't remember those words, don't worry. Um, but I'm going to put that here. There's a little direct object marker. So things is here. These is a modifier. Which things? It's these things. It's not those things. It's these things. I have said these things, and I've said them to you. To you is called the indirect object. So the things receives the adjective of the verb. He said these things, but he said them to you. And so I'm going to put that, and it's got a little two as a preposition. Remember the, that word? Preposition is a little word that, that connects a noun with something else. And uh, so to you, I'm going to um, put that here. I can tell I'm making some of you guys really nervous. That's good. Okay. So there. So this is Jesus. says, I have said these things to you. So already I'm asking questions. You know, what are the these things? Who are the you? What are the these things? So, and I might, I might already start making notes, you know, like, uh, um, oops, yeah, so um, I might just make, make myself a question, what are these things, you know, I might just raise a question or something like that just to remind me, um, but uh, um, so I've said these things to you, and now there's another proposition, another clause that in me you may have peace. Hmm. Okay, in me you may have peace. So I'll, I'll just... Um, so I, this is why if you're diagramming um, on a computer, it's easy to make corrections. If you're, if you're diagramming with, um, on paper, um, what do you think a rule is? Don't use pen. <laughs> use a pencil. Remember that the pencil is your best eyes, not the pen. It's the pencil. And uh, so, so in me you may have peace. So again, I'm going to have, I'm going to look for the verb. And I see it right here, may have. Okay. And, uh, and then who's the subject? Who may have that, that you may have. Okay. That you may have and then may have what? Peace, okay, so that's the direct object. 
Okay, so I'll put that there. And, uh, and then, what is the in me doing? That's a, in is what part of speech? Preposition. Good, all you school teachers out there. Okay, and uh, me is the object of the preposition. And uh, what question is, this, this is, see, this is where I, I worship during diagramming. And, uh, and so I, I just ask questions like, where does the in me go? What, what, what's it really, what question is it answering in the phrase? Okay, you think it could be, it could be a kind of piece, an in me kind of piece, and that wouldn't be wrong. But I think it probably answers the question, where? Where do you have it? You have it in me. So I would probably um, put under the verb. We might disagree about that. That's okay. Um, that you may have peace in me. Where do you have this peace? You have it in me. Who's the me? It's Jesus. Okay, so it just slows me down. You know, and, and, uh, and then I got one word left, that. Okay, what's that? It's a conjunction. Okay, a conjunction. It conjoins together two thoughts. Okay? And, uh, and so the way I show that is I take this fancy little line right here, and I'm going to extend it down to here, and I'll connect this over here. And I'll put this right there. And so, but then you have to ask the question, yeah, and we'll ask this question later. But anyway, we see it's a conjunction. It's, it's, it's joining together these two clauses, and it gives a certain clue. And we'll look at that more when we arc it. But uh, we'll just notice that. Okay, so now, the next part of the verse in the world, you will have tribulation. Okay, so again, we've got uh, verb is will have, and subject is you. You will have, direct object is you'll have what? You'll have tribulation. Okay, and in the world, I would probably put it here. Where, where do you have tribulation? You have it in the world. Where do you have peace? You have it in me. So right, right away, I'm just seeing, wow. That's, it's not that I didn't know that before. But I probably read it over so fast, it just kind of breezed by. And now I'm saying, wow, I cherish this. You know, I've said these things to you that in me, you might have peace. Um, in the world, you have tribulation. Okay, now I got another clause right here, but take heart. Hmm. Okay, so we, if you have a clause, it's got to there, and uh, this one's a little trickier maybe. Um, what's uh, the verb? Take, 
And uh, I'm going to go ahead and say take heart just because um, I mean, you could have take with a direct object of heart, but I mean, the Greek is just one verb. And uh, um, so I'm going to keep it together as a verb, but you could put it as a direct object. Take, what do you take? You take the heart. But take heart is more of an idiom, more of a saying. Just what's, what's a synonym for take heart? Be encouraged. Or if you speak King James English, you'd say, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Or take heart or be encouraged. Okay, and then, but is, what's that called again? It's a conjunction. So I'm just going to go ahead and put that up there. But take heart. And then we've got one more clause. And uh, so I'll start my little clause line again. And uh, I'll take uh, the verb. Not a lot of variety of verbs here. I, well, here it is. I have overcome. See, it's, it's interesting. Different languages, I don't know what it is like in Arabic or whatever, but in Greek, um, have overcome would just be one word. In English, it's, it's overcome is the main verb and have is like a helping verb. To kind of to put it into the, the past tense. So, but take heart, I have overcome. And then what do you do with the world? Direct object. So, so if you fall in love with diagramming, you can use this for free online, BibleArc.com. And, uh, and, uh, but I just, lo I just love it. Just because it's, it's just slowed me down now. So now I've, I've given an account for every single word. I know how every single word functions. Whether I know what it means necessarily completely or not, that's a second issue. But I know how every single word functions. I've, in that sense, I've honored every word of the text. And I've asked the question, how does it fit? You know, and, and, uh, um, and I can already tell this is going to be good news. Um, so anyway, so that's, that's diagramming. So what, uh, I'll just show you an example of uh, how complicated diagramming can get. Um, when I teach my students, I, I usually use Ephesians as the, the um, laboratory. And... Uh, um, and, uh, and, and, and when they start, when I teach them diagramming, the first verse we diagram, or the first part we diagram is Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, which happens to be the longest sentence in the Bible, the most complicated sentence in the Bible. So I, I throw them into the ocean, and they diagram Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 in Greek, and, uh, and, so it's just in, in, in English, it's three sentences maybe in your English translation, but in the Greek, it's really one sentence. And Ephesians has a lot of long sentences, but this is the longest by a bunch. So, but you just see how, how long it is. You know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, blessed us in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we 
should be holy and blameless before him, having predestined us in love unto sonship through Jesus Christ unto himself according to the good pleasure of his will, under the praise of the glory of His grace, which grace He graced us in the Beloved, in whom, in the Beloved, in whom we have apostleship, or we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, through His blood, according to the riches of His grace, which grace He abounded toward us, in all wisdom and knowledge or insight, having made known to us the mystery of his will, um, and he made it known according to his good pleasure, and the mystery of his will. Here's the mystery of his will. Brings us down to here. This is what the mystery is. Um, his good pleasure. First of all, I say, which he purposed in him before the foundation, purpose in him unto a stewardship of the fullness of the times. Um, that we, and here's the mystery, to sum up all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things on the earth, in Him, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, have been predestined according to the purpose of His, of the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will, um, in order that we, namely the ones who first hoped in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory, um, in whom you are also sealed, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed in him, you were sealed in the Holy Spirit of promise um, for redemption of the possession, the spirit which is the down payment of our inheritance, unto the praise of his glory. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write um, what some scholars called the most magisterial sentence in literature, and some scholars call the biggest nightmare. Um, and I, I, I side with the magisterial. I mean, it's just an amazing flow of thought and and he starts it out with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what that really is, it's, he's just ascribing blessedness to God, praiseworthiness to God, and he's, he's, he's inviting us to join him. So it's really a doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he just unpacks it. And... Uh, so you might say, Paul, why did you do this to us? And uh, so we might meditate and just follow it. And, uh, and it takes time to unravel it. And, uh, and you don't need to set, do a diagram. I mean, a di the diagram, and again, for me, it just forces me to account for every single word. And, uh, and I, re I really do. I, I worship uh, while, I'm, while I'm diagramming. And uh, so, anyway, so that's just an example of diagramming. Um, so let me go back to uh, uh, right here. 
Okay, so we've diagrammed John 16 through. See, don't you just love it that there are different authors in the Bible? They have different styles. And, uh, and, and Jesus, as recorded by John, spoke in just shorter sentences. And uh, um, so, whoops. Uh-oh, did I do something wrong? Is it going to come back? This maybe maybe uh, Weston t- said we've done too much. Oh, he did it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. Good. So here we've we've uh, we've diagrammed it, and so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to the phrasing for a second. And uh, um, and the phrasing is 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 what. Phrasing does is it, it gets you to, to just see the author's flow of thought, proposition by proposition. Okay? And uh, um, it lets me make some preliminary observations. Arcing is where it, it, I can kind of complete it in a different way. But So I look at this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Okay? And uh, so what I, what I want to do is... Um, I want to highlight this word because it's a conjunction. So I think I just go like that. Oops. Do that. Yeah. That in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. So those are two conjunctions. Okay? So I just, I just automatically will highlight the conjunctions because that's where the author intentionally puts in a marker of how the thought is going to relate to the next thought. Then I've got to figure out what, what it does. So I've said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. So what question does this second clause answer to the first? I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. How would you describe that? Just use your own words. You don't have to have fancy words. But uh, what questions? What questions does it answer? I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Okay. The purpose. Purpose of what? Okay. Good. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. So sixteen thirty three B is the purpose of the first clause. And so I'm going to just highlight that. Um, Go like that, go like that, and uh, I'll just put purpose of 33A, something like that. Okay, so now I've, I've... Identify at least how I understand this thought to relate to the previous thought. I have said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. Okay, in the world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So now I want to think through um, this sequence of thought right here. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart. Um, 
How would you describe that? In the world you will have trouble, but take heart. Be in, yeah, take heart, be encouraged. What, what does the but show? Pardon? Okay, yeah, that's good. Despite of the fact that in the world you will have trouble or tribulation, but take heart. And uh, um, what I want to show you now, just before we go any farther, is, and this is one of the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant contributions of Steve's dad, Dan Fuller, who's now 91 years old and uh, totally blind. And uh, I saw him, I think it was three years ago or so, I went into his house, and uh, he wasn't totally blind yet, but I, he was sitting in his chair, and he wanted to talk about Romans 8 together. And uh, he had his magnifying glass out and his Greek New Testament and the same sweater that he wore back in 1978. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And, uh, but then I saw him again just this summer, and now he can't see it all. And, but he still, his mind is just sharp thinking about the Word of God. And, uh, but one of the great contributions that he made was that he, um, he, in his figuring, and I think he's, he's accurate, there might be some adjustments, but uh, he says there's basically 17 or 18 ways that two thoughts can relate. It's not an infinite number. There's 17 or 18 ways that two thoughts can relate. And what he did was he gave it a vocabulary so that those who want to study this method can have a vocabulary. So, so for example, um, what was just suggested was that the but shows kind of a despite, a despite of the fact that in the world you have trouble, nevertheless, take heart. And, uh, and he, he called that, um, he called it an adversative relationship, but now we, we call it a, a, it's a, um, a concessive relationship. And uh, I'll give you just a, oh no, I won't, we don't have sound. Um, okay, so uh, I'll go back here to, no, to right here. No, to here, okay. That in me you might have, so, so take heart is, I would say, I would call it, you need to know this terminology, but if you're interested in it, you could use BibleArc.com. There's another, hand, another um, reference that's at the back um, it's John Piper's book on biblical exegesis that talks about this terminology, and you can decide if it's helpful to you. But uh, so I would say that um, um, this is—oops, I'm sorry. This is. Uh, second, I got to cancel. Um, this one is concessive. to 33, is that C or D? 33, A, B, C, D, 33, D. So, um, so in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. 
So what that means is when I say it's concessive, it's like Jesus saying, I concede to you the fact that in the world you will have trouble. I'll concede that to you. And, and that makes what I'm going to say next surprising. Usually you would think, in the world you're going to have trouble, so duck or so hide or so run away or um, something. And, uh, but says, I'll concede you the fact that in the world you'll have trouble. Nevertheless, take heart. So that makes this a really strong statement because it can stand in spite of this contrary statement. You wouldn't think that this would be the normal response to trouble in the world is take heart or be of good cheer, be happy. And uh, so it makes that very strong. Now let's just look at one more. But take heart, I have overcome the world. How these two thoughts relate. First of all, notice there's no conjunction here. Jesus could have given a conjunction that would have made it crystal clear. But a lot of times an author leaves out a conjunction because in their minds it's so obvious. So what question does 1633E answer of, of but take heart? I have overcome the world. Why? So, yeah, take heart, I have overcome the world. It answers the question, why you take heart? Because, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. So I would say that this, oops, is a, a ground... or a support, or something like that, and there's different terminology you can, you can use, A, B, C, D, to 33D. Okay. So, so now I've, I've, uh, I've at least done some of this labeling of, of how these thoughts might relate, okay? But I'm going to show you one more step because I, I think the phrasing helps you to begin to break down and to think through and to ask questions. But the final product of the phrasing doesn't show me everything I want to see. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just let you see a, an arc, even though my goal isn't to teach you arcing today, but I'm going to just show it to you. And it's kind of like phrasing again. Um, um, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I, I have, why is that not, oh, I have overcome the world. Okay? Um, so, first of all, we said this was the purpose of this. So, we have a way then of showing the relationship between those two, it's, it's an action purpose. So here's the action purpose. Okay, so I've got that. So now I've illustrated in my own thinking, this is how I understand Jesus to be making sense. I have said these things to you, and this is my purpose in saying them. 
that in me you may have peace. But now this part, in the world you'll have trouble, but take heart. And so I'm going to, uh, maybe I'll close up these, these two first. Take heart, I have overcome the world. We said that was a ground or a support statement. So there it is. Um, take heart, I have overcome the world. And the main point now under this arc is the take heart. And this is a supporting point. So the take heart is the main point. That relates to what precedes is this is concessive to that. So concessive. Go down here. Okay, so now I know that there's two big ideas. I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. Okay? And that's just kind of a statement of fact, isn't it? He's just, he's just telling us why he said these things. I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. That's a statement of fact. But in 33, the rest of 33C through 33E, there's an imperative. Take heart. Take heart. And, uh, and so, so the, way, the way I'd probably put these two together is I'd probably put this as, a, as an inference. So I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. Okay, I've said them. That's why I've said them to you. And so, therefore, take heart. Take heart. Based on my word, take heart. Even though in the world you're going to have trouble. And the reason you take heart is because I've overcome the world. So when Dr. Piper, Pastor John, when he um, preached at my wedding, he only preached on half the verse. Just because wedding sermons shouldn't be too long because you'll pass out, that kind of thing. So he just, he just preached on the last three propositions. And I remember, the memory he opened his sermon and saying, Tom and Julie, I have a tremendous trilogy of propositions for you. And then he just made three points. Number one, in the world you will have trouble. I guarantee you, Tom and Julie, you are going to have trouble in your marriage just the way it is. You're going to have trouble. And he elaborated on that. Second proposition. Nevertheless, take heart. Be encouraged. Be happy. That's the command. God's command for your marriage, Tom and Julie, is that you take heart. You be happy in spite of those troubles. Don't let those troubles rob you of the joy that I want to give you in your marriage. And, uh, and, then, and then the third proposition, he says, I'm going to give you the foundation for your marriage. The reason you can be happy and take heart and be encouraged in spite of all kinds of hassles all kinds of problems, all kinds of troubles, more than you ever dreamed you'd have. The reason is, I have overcome the world.
Wow, that was powerful. I mean, it has fed me to this day to think of it that way. And, uh, and so, but what the arcing does is it just, now I, I've, I've recorded how I understand the flow. Just because I've drawn the arcs doesn't mean I understood it right. I might have the arcs all wrong, you know. But this is a snapshot of how my little brain has gotten around this series of thoughts in John 16:33, and uh, and I think there's other ways you can do it besides learning this method. But if you're interested in it, you can do it. If you don't like if you don't like round circles and you like brackets, you can go that way. And uh, so you can you can just. Um, Show it that way. So you can say, oh, this one connects to that one, and this one connects to that one. And we, so, I mean, there's different ways you can visualize it. So that's not the, the critical part. But, um, but following the author's train of thought is really um, worth every effort that we can, we can give it. So, um, and I think of this, I, I sometimes, um, as I work on this text with people, um, I, I play, um, I, mean, I mean, basically what Jesus is saying, he's saying, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> so we, we, know, we know Bobby McFerrin, and uh, there's another guy, a famous guy that's saying it too, but Bobby McFerrin wrote the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. And so what I have my students do is to listen to the song, and, uh, and I say, okay, listen to the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, and write down all the ground clauses that you hear, all the supporting statements for why you can, you can be happy. And uh, it's really pretty hilarious to listen to his worldview. Because don't, don't worry, be happy. I think one is because if you frown, you bring other people down. Um, I mean, a lot of inadequate reasons not to, you know, to not worry. And... Uh, but when you compare it with Jesus, and he says, I mean, Jesus is so realistic. In the world, you will have trouble. Each, each day has enough trouble of its own, Jesus taught in Matthew 6, didn't he? Each day has enough trouble of its own. He said, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And uh, Paul said in as he was going around, he, he encouraged the disciples by saying, through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom. An interesting way to encourage the disciples. So if we have a, a rose-colored glasses on and being a Christian, if I'm really a Christian, I'm really walking in the Spirit and have faith, you know, everything's going to go just smooth. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible is very realistic that you're going to have trouble. So don't, when the trouble comes, this is what we're to do, is we're to take heart by putting our faith in the, the promise and the reality that Jesus has overcome the world, which means that he's going to work all things together for good, which means, I mean, what he's, what he's talking about, I mean, he's talking to disciples who he's just saying, hey, disciples, I'm going to go out and I'm going to die. And you're going to betray me, I'm going to die. I mean, couldn't be worse news than imagine, you can imagine. 
but he says, um, you're going to have trouble. It's going to get really dark, but take heart. Don't lose heart. Take heart. Be encouraged because I've overcome the world. So, okay. So that's, that's um, an example. Um, we're not going to do all this with two other texts. I want to look at, we'll just see if we can get two other texts in, but at least one other text. Because um, I, I kind of want you to do one by yourself, or one maybe as a table. Just at least, at least talk a little bit about it. And we're not going to arc it, not going to diagram it, don't worry about that. But um, uh, what I'd like you to do, why don't we do it this way? I, so we have time for this one. I want, I want you to do a little bit of homework there. You've got, you got wonderful pieces of paper, although you don't need it. What you can just use is use your... Uh, um, wait a second. We've got... Uh, sorry, here. Go ahead. Um, use this one. Uh, let's see. Um, we're going to look at Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Okay, that's a long... So that's a long passage. And what I want you to do is maybe take um, 10 minutes just on your own, quietly, to go through the text and just to divide it up into its phrases, okay? So divide it up into its phrases and then maybe put a box around or maybe underline. Divide it up into phrases and then underline what you think the main point or points are. So don't sneak a peek at each other's thing. And just do your work, and then you can uh, discuss it together for a couple minutes.
are very studious. So what I'd like you to do when you feel like you're looked at a little bit, um, don't, don't so much compare your line drawing, but compare yourself what you think the main points are and, uh, and just other things that you observed. Um, just share that with your table for maybe another five to seven minutes just so you can kind of verbalize some of it and then we'll look at it together.
Give me just a few more minutes. Okay, let's uh, gather our thoughts together, and uh, love to hear any observations or um, any thoughts on what the main point is. Don't be anxious. Okay, so don't be anxious. Seek the kingdom of God. So there you have what's called a negative positive. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or drink or how you're going to clothe yourself, but seek first the kingdom of God. So don't be anxious is a bunch of times. It says about, what, three or four times? Don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. And one time he says, but seek first the kingdom of God. So I think that's a great way to see it is that it's don't do this 
do this. And uh, what else did you observe? Anything else that you observed? Just about how this, the passage is structured? Or insights that you got? Or you know, It's kind of open-ended question here, so it's not too many wrong answers out there, so don't worry. But, yeah. Pardon? What was that? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So he's he's giving illustrations and uh, and then drawing lessons from those illustrations. Do you have your hand up? Okay. Say say that one more time. Yeah, let, yeah. Isn't life consistent more than than what you eat and drink? And yeah, isn't life worth more than that? Yeah, that's good. Anything else? Me wants to add. What you saw? Yes. I've got you. God's gonna care for you. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Oh, okay. Good. What's a rhetorical question? Pardon? Okay. Good. Did everybody see that? There's a, a number of rhetorical questions. Um, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Yeah, and he doesn't bother to answer it. You know, um, is the Pope Catholic? You know, you don't, you don't bother to answer it. And, uh, and so anytime you see a rhetorical question, when, when you're doing the paraphrasing, um, what I do is I restate it as a, an assertion. And so you say, what, what is he asserting by that rhetorical question? So is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? How would you restate that, just to take the question out of it? Good. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. And then he gives his illustration to support that. How about down here? Are you not worth much more than they? Is he make, in other words, than, than the, the birds of the air? He's not, he's not trying to get you to say, hmm, that's a good philosophical question. Is a bird worth more than a human being made in his image? Um, no, he's not getting us to deliberate that. He's making a statement. Um, you are worth much more than they. Um, and why are you worried about clothing? How do you restate that one? Yeah, well, or yeah, why are you worried about clothing? Or you could say there's absolutely no good reason to worry about clothing. You ought not to worry about clothing. Um, yeah. And, and down here, if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Eh, I'm not sure. You know, he, doesn't, he doesn't mean for us to come that way. He means us to say, um, he will all the more clothe you. 
So, yeah, so to see rhetorical questions um, and to say what's being asserted, because that's, that's a frequent thing in, in the Gospels and in the epistles and other places, rhetorical questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's not saying, well, Joe's against me and Mary's against me. And if God is for us, no one can be against you, ultimately. So, yeah. Um, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Yeah, and uh, the way I would see that is it's a command, first of all, don't worry about tomorrow. That's an imperative. That's a command. Okay, and then he gives you, a, he gives you the conjunction for tomorrow will care for itself. And, uh, and I think he's just saying don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will care for itself. And I don't think he means in a fatalistic, mechanistic kind of way. I think he means he, he will take care of it. He will take care of it. But then how does that next one function? Each day has enough trouble of its own. How does that relate? Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Yeah, that's right. He's, not, he's, he's, he's promising the exact opposite. I mean, if you talk about the promises of God, here's a promise, and we can all say, yep, you keep this promise, God. Each day does have enough trouble of its own. I'm so glad he said that to us. I mean, if he didn't say that to us and each day had so much trouble, I, I'd say, God, I didn't dream this, you know. I thought every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. And, uh, and I think it is in eternity. But right now we have some bad days, don't we? And some, but yeah, so I, I think he's saying, don't worry about tomorrow. Reason number one, tomorrow will care for itself. Nothing you can do. Don't borrow tomorrow's troubles. And, and secondly, don't worry about tomorrow. Well, you've got enough trouble today. So don't worry about tomorrow. Just worry about today. And the way you worry about today is, is trust God. As you bring your worries to God. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, that's a good observation is, um, well, the first thing I would observe is, I mean, look at, look at um, like, starting with verse 31, don't worry, it's kind of a summary statement, therefore, don't worry, saying what will we eat or what will we drink or with what will we clothe ourselves, and here's a reason, for... The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. How can that be a reason not to worry about what you're going to eat and drink? You don't want to be like a Gentile, do you? You, you shouldn't be like a Gentile. You're not a Gentile. You're not, you're not an outcast. You're not, you're, you're not separated from God. So I, so I think that's what he's saying, is, is, is don't be, you're not like a Gentile, so don't act like one. But then 32b gives, I think, it would be another reason. The reason you don't worry about tomorrow, or the reason you don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear is because your Father knows that you need these things. 
And, and if he knows, it presupposes that it's not so encouraging necessarily. He could say, well, you know, Mao knew that uh, the people needed more food or something like that. Well, he didn't care, maybe. But here, it presupposes that your, if your father knows that you need it, he's your father. If he knows you need them, he's going to take care of you. So, and, but then, getting back to what started this, is so don't worry about tomorrow. So this brings it back up to the, this is, a, this is a command level, but this is a command level. So I would say that this little clause right here, 33b, is functioning as a support for what immediately precedes and what immediately follows. And uh, so seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the reason you can do that is everything's going to be taken care of. And since everything's going to be taken care of, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. God's going to take care of you tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Focus on today. Get through today. Trusting in me. And uh, so let me show you with a little bit of time left. Let's, you want to, yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great, a great question. I mean, he does talk about, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, and he does talk about the kingdom right at the very beginning. You know, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so he's, kingdom is just all through Matthew, and... Uh, Later in Matthew, Matthew 13 and other places, he gives the parables of the kingdom. And, uh, and I think he's, he's trying to teach us what the kingdom is. And, uh, um, and so, so I think, I think, the, um, I think, the, I think the readers or the listeners would understand Jesus, um, that the kingdom is, um, you know, kingdom can either be the king's dominion or the king's domain, so it can focus on realm, or it can focus on power and reign and inbreaking. And uh, and I think primarily for Jesus, this at this stage of redemptive history, the kingdom of God is the inbreaking of the reign of God. So it's to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And uh, righteousness also is a word that can be taken different ways, but it, I think it means God acting in righteousness, God acting to bring about the right. And that's what the king, the king, the good king does, is he exercises his dominion to bring about the, the welfare of his subjects. And uh, so I'd probably take it that way. And so that's what we're to seek first, is, is God's reign, God's supremacy. That's what we're to be consumed with. We don't be consumed with with what I'm going to eat or what I'm going to drink or what I'm going to wear. I'm not going to be consumed with those things. I want, I mean, my heart is made for, for God, you know, and then 
Augustine says, it'll be restless until it finds its rest in you. So if we try to fill up this God-shaped hole in our heart through clothes and food and drink, um, and we forget the biggest issue, the biggest thing, which is God's salvation, God's saving work, um, we'll be in trouble. Um, great questions. And uh, let me show you... Um, I, I talked earlier, I said I'd show you what a logical paraphrase would look like. And, uh, oops, let's see here. Um, I'm going to add column there. Okay. So um, here's what I mean by a logical paraphrase. And so what I'm doing here is I'm, I, I put the ESV on this column over here just to keep me honest. And, uh, but how I understand the flow of thought, I make clearer, at least it's clear to me, I don't know if it will be to you, clearer to me through a, the paraphrase. So the first thing I notice is that it starts with a, for this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life. So that automatically is pointing us backwards. For this reason, something he previously said is now, for this reason I say to you, don't be worried about eternal life. And what he previously just talked about is, is um, serving God and money. You can't serve both. You either love the one and hate the other. Um, the eye is, you have to have the, the clear eye. So somehow I, I put that in there. Since it's impossible to serve both God and money, for this reason I say to you, don't worry. Don't be worried about your life. Don't be worried about the money side. Specifically, Life is general here. Don't be worried about what sustains your life. Specifically, don't be worried about what you will eat and don't be worried about what you will drink. You see, I'm just spelling it out. Further, furthermore, don't be worried about your body, for your body. Okay. Specifically, about your body, don't worry about what you'll put on. And then I think this rhetorical question is functioning as a support for... Life is surely more than food, and the body is surely more than clothing, so, so don't act like it isn't. Like there's more to life. And then what follows explains what I mean that life is more than food and clothing. And now he's going to address the, the food issue, later he'll address the, the clothing issue. Concerning food, look at the birds of the air that even though they don't sow, nor do they reap, nor do they gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Wow. God, a fortiori argument, if God cares about the birds, how much more does he care about us? And then... This argument is strengthened. I think that's what this rhetorical question is doing. This argument is strengthened by the fact that you are worth much more than they. Implication, God will all the more feed you. That's what I think is the logic behind that. Another reason not to worry is that who can add a single hour to his life by being worried? You can't. In other words, it doesn't help. So another reason not to worry is that no one, um, oops, 
should be no one can add a single hour to his life by being worried about food or drink. In other words, worrying about food and drink doesn't, it doesn't help you. The worrying, it just doesn't help you. Why do we do it? We, we, we all do it, don't we? And Paul knows we do it. Jesus knows we do it. Why do we do it? It's worthless. It doesn't help. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, whatever is true and honorable and praiseworthy, think on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the, the marching orders are clear, even though our, our heart palpitates. Um, and now he shifts over to clothing. And concerning clothing for the body, there's no valid reason to worry about clothing. Let me illustrate by asking you to observe how the lilies of the field grow. And here's how they grow, in that they don't toil and in that they don't spin. They don't toil and they don't spin. I always wonder what the spinning, you know, I thought of the flowers, they don't spin around in a circle or something, but I realize now that it's, it's spinning, you know, wool or whatever. <laughs> took me a long time, it took me years to figure that one out. <laughs> So they don't toil, they don't spin. In spite of this lack of toiling or spinning, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. The point I'm making is this. Since God so clothes the grass of the field, even though it's alive today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, therefore he will most certainly all the more clothe you, even though you're of little faith. He makes us promise, even though you know he's acknowledging this is this this is a faith issue for us, and we waver. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love that prayer. It's one of my favorite prayers of the Bible. Where man says to Jesus, "Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief." Jesus relates to that. He's he he's compassionate toward us. Um, therefore, since God will more so, certainly clothe you, therefore don't worry saying, what, what are we going to eat or what are we going to drink or what are we going to wear for clothing? The reason you must not worry is that Gentiles eagerly seek these things and you're not a Gentile. Another reason you don't need to worry is that your Heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Therefore, don't worry. But... Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The reason that you don't need to worry is that all these things, food, drink, clothing, etc., will be added to you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Furthermore, each day has enough trouble of its own. So that, that, that's my best effort of articulating at least how I see the, the flow of thought. And so this is what I call a logical paraphrase. And uh, so, um, let's see how we're doing here. I think our time is, is fleeting quickly. It's fleeting really quickly. So let me just uh, um, 
say one more word about just the uh, the resources. Um, uh, where it is? Um, let's see. So here's just here's just some study resources. Um, I won't say much about them. Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book. He's not. I think he died a believer. I don't think he was a believer when he wrote this. Um, but uh, it's probably one of the most famous books on just how to read carefully. And, uh, and it's very helpful. Um, it's just it's how to be a careful reader. And uh, um, it's, it's worth reading. Thomas Schreiner wrote a book called Interpreting the Pauline Epistles. Um, it's a helpful book. It has some stuff on diagramming and arcing in that one. Um, John Piper has got a book, this is coming out, called um, Reading the Bible Supernaturally. And, uh, and it's going to get into method, but uh, it's going to be interesting. Um, Howard Hendricks, Living by the Book. Howard Hendricks is one of the foremost inductive Bible study teachers. Um, and this is, a, this is a very famous and helpful book that uh, if you're interested in this, and then I talked about how to read the Bible for all it's worth with Gordon Fee and Doug Stewart. And that talks about the genres, the different genres, Proverbs and Psalms and prophecy and, and uh, Gospels and narrative and epistles and those different genres. Online resources. Um, this, this one, uh, you, could, you can just download this whole seminar in an expanded format, taking you through Philippians. If you want to really go deeper with this, you can just download that for free and, and use it. Um, if we, there's also a course called Principles of Biblical Interpretation that we've designed, um, and uh, that um, is, is the same content as this, except it adds some video and some um, audio to it. Um, and that you take online, that costs a little bit, it costs 30 bucks, but this is free up here. And then, and then these, these um, online Bible tools are so helpful. Um, Bible Arc is the one that I've been working with. Another one called Blue Letter Bible. Has anybody heard of Blue Letter Bible? Has anybody ever used Blue Letter Bible? Okay, that's fun. The guy that designed Blue Letter Bible, um, uh, he's, he's a Jewish man that got converted and uh, and made all kinds of money through I don't know I don't know what he did something fancy in Silicon Valley I'm not sure what it was but uh, then he just invested in 19, the mid 1990s um, in creating probably the first internet Bible program and uh, it's still going strong it's been used all over the world and uh, and he in his 60s has has enrolled in our little college and seminary. So he's moved to Minnesota, and uh, he's just the funniest, wonderful, most wonderful guy. Um, and so Blue Letter Bible, Bible.org, BibleGateway.org, those are all, you can just explore these, see if there's helpful things. Someone asked about Strong's Concordances, you know, you can get, you can get access through these to find that. John Piper, you can download this. This is a little booklet on discovering the meaning of biblical texts and, and then the course. So um, thank you so much for letting me be a part of, of your lives and uh, 
just the privilege of coming out and seeing Grace. Um, I've heard about so much, and to meet the people has been a, a real treasure to me. So I'm going to turn it back over to, to Steve to... So.